0: This is Dig on One Two Three, and welcome to the all new Tenchi Cast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next. Exciting episode of TenchiCast presented by TenchiForum.com. Continuing on with the early OVA, we go into the second half of what many people refer to as just Tenchi Muyo, which is all of OVA 2 and Night Before the Carnival. With me today, I've got some old and new faces to TenchiCast Aria. Hello. Pi. I'd rather die than forsake any one of them. Doctor.
1: Hey there, demons. It's me, ya boy. And
0: Snowy.
2: Hello, hello. Yo, solo.
0: Favorite moments, least favorite moments. For OVA2.
3: One of my favorite moments comes into play with Washu. The way she throws shade at Dr. Clay with her doll that she used to evade capture by Zero, saying that she'd even put a ribbon on it for him. Then bringing the joke back later, that was gold. As far as one of my least favorite moments, I'd probably have to say the part where Zero expresses fear about Lady Tokimi. I completely get it, mind. It was just that it seemed to set up for Lady Tokimi to be more within that story thread, and then, well, you got nothing. Felt like that was a bit of a letdown in a way, that they had that easy-to-set-up,
1: something for the future and then it just went nowhere. So I have a few things to unpack here. Like I said in the last part, the opening for OVA 2 I am a pioneer incredible song, makes me feel so many things that it's hard to describe. It's just such a feel good song. It has like it hits all the right notes and of course the animation is very nice too. It's nice, but the song is the one that it's it makes it for me. And I second what Arya said about Washu and her back and forth with Clay. I thought it was very entertaining seeing how she outsmarts him at every turn and her development, her character development. I thought the focus on Washu in OVA 2 was fantastic because it's like you introduced this new character in OVA 1, okay? So now in OVA 2, we get to learn more about her, especially in episode 8 with the baby. It's really touching and really Really emotional stuff with her. She's just such a great character, and OVA2 really made me appreciate her. One little moment that I really loved was in uh episode 10, I Love Tenchi, where Ryoko tore apart Tenchi's mother's kimono. And Tenchi says that he hates her in a blind fury. Like he doesn't we know he doesn't actually mean it, but she just she pisses him off to the point that he just has an outburst. I think that adds to his character because we haven't seen Tenchi have an outburst, really. We've we've seen him kind of be, you know, a little... We've seen him be serious a lot, you know, playing off of Ryoko and stuff, but we've never seen him get super angry. And that was just something that, like, it really struck me when he said that. When he said, I hate you, when Matt, Matt Miller's saying, I hate you, it made me feel like, oh, no, please don't hate me. But of course, we know he's saying that's Ryoko. And her reaction is completely valid. And the sweetest moment is when... He comes back from working in the field and she's holding the kimono that she stitched back up by herself. And she has like little cuts on her hands and stuff. And the fact that we didn't even see that, but we just see her and we know that she like worked hard to put it back together for him. It just it really shows that she does love him and care for him in a way that we haven't really seen before that point. I mean, we did know she loved him, but we didn't know... Well, not that we didn't know, but we haven't seen it in that way before. Least favorite moments? This is kind of like a general thing that we can... I don't want to speak for anybody, but I feel like I've heard some people say before. Ryoko combining with Zero and then becoming more submissive in a way. Like, becoming more flustered and... It's hard to describe, but you you get what I mean. I didn't like that because one of the things that separated Ryoko from many, many other characters I've seen is that she is very blunt about what she wants and will do whatever it takes to get it. And that's just something so unique about her character. And the fact that they just kind of said, no, 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 that's not how she really feels. Zero, that those are her real feelings. I'm just like, it just kind of made me feel like that's not how feelings work in a way and I, I don't know it just it was just something that made me feel like well you had this unique character and then you kind of downgraded her because kajashima wills it sasami not really being sasami and actually being tsunami that that whole thing was kind of confusing it just kind of been like and they're kind of being like oh yeah this character who was this really sweet little girl who was you know paling around with everyone who you started to like a lot yeah she was actually dead and um the goddess tsunami is actually living inside her and i'm like oh that um yeah that that didn't hit a right nerve with me (sighs) yeah those are my favorite and least favorite moments
2: well i watched over two quite recently and i'm gonna kind of go with like comparing it to how i first felt when i watched it for the first time versus watching it now and it's kind of like well like you live and you learn and when you with age comes wisdom and watching it now i've yeah i've noticed some things i didn't notice when i first watched it because i was a lot younger then and especially with knowing what i know now kind of makes me a little uncomfortable i'm not gonna lie there's some stuff that makes me uncomfortable but i guess i should talk about my favorite favorite moments being learning more about washu because like doctor said you didn't really get to see her until like, the very last episode of OVA 1. So to have her in OVA 2 being flushed out was nice. And hearing that she's had a child. And hearing through all this hardship that she's she went through. I mean, that's very interesting. And I wanted- I wish we knew more about that. But unfortunately, I don't get to know more about that. And then the whole thing with her and Dr. Clay was quite funny too. Like she's outsmarting him and just trolling him. And she's just the butt of her jokes. And just you know, treating this as, like, nothing because she's, like, she's just treating him, like, as a joke because he kind of, kind of is a joke. That was fun to see, like, Washu being Washu and all smug and that was great to watch. And then the whole thing with Tsunami and Sasami, I actually really like because, yeah, it's quite a dark turn, I'm not going to lie, but it makes it very interesting to me. That made me, like, really intrigued. The fact that Sasami is technically... She is Sasami, but she's not the same Sasami. And it's like, you had to see, especially Aika, having to come to terms with that, and then they have that moment where they're talking, and she's like, well, I still love you very much. You're you're still Sasami to me. But then they kind of ruin it, though, when she runs to Tenchi for some reason. Like, Sasami's like, oh! And you look like she's gonna hug Aika, but she hugs Tenchi. I mean, that's supposed to be like, a comedic thing, but I was just like, that's a little unnecessary, but all right. It's just very intriguing to know that Tsunami and Sasami are the same person. It was already hinted at at OVA1, but like um, people were saying earlier, everything gets kind of smashed at the end of OVA1. And then at least these few episodes in OVA2 kind of let everybody breathe a little bit and get flushed out a little bit, getting to know more about the characters. And that being said, though, there are things that are kind of quote unquote telling of what's to come that I don't. I'm not personally a fan of, I'm not going to speak for anybody else, but like the whole ryo having a humanoid body, now I mean, I didn't think about it much of the time, but it was just kind of like, oh, now I think about it, I'm like, oh, I see kind of why that happened now, and it kind of ruins it for me. I mean, there's still like really cute Ryoki moments, like in her child form, like if Here Comes Dry and all that, and I still like those, they're still really cute and all that, but i'm not so sure about it anymore and then the whole zero yoko thing like i used to like that arc a lot now i don't anymore because like doctor was saying it's kind of it kind of changes her but because kajishima wills it like he wants her that way it seems like so that way she quote-unquote no strong females and all that and i don't know something something about that makes me uncomfortable the reason I loved Ryoko so much in the first place is because she was, like, a strong, I'm not, I don't give a shit about anyone else's opinion and all that, and then I mean, it's good to have character development and all that, and to, like, have different feelings more than just, like, one feeling or whatever. And, of course, characters need to grow because if they don't, then they're just, you know, you can have a good story, but what's the point where you don't have a good character? But it's, like, right after that, she starts becoming, like, a punching bag to everybody, and uh, I don't really appreciate that. I mean, the whole thing with uh, Misaki and Ryoko is hilarious, though. I'm not gonna lie. Because it's that one instance where I feel like, yeah, Misaki is, like, really OP and just she's coming in here, like, all ridiculous and all like, oh, you're so cute, you're so cute. And then she sees another cute thing and just kind of throws away the other thing. I mean, that's just kind of her personality, it seems. And, you know, that scene was all funny and all, but it's just, like, after that, like going to OV3 and all that, where she's just like everybody's punching bag. It's like not okay. And I don't really like it too much, but you know, that's just me though.
4: Taking me back to when I first watched this, when I was in college off of VA old VHS tapes, OVA2, again, I've said this in the previous podcast on about OVA1, that OVA1 is this nice close story. It's a little rushed near the end, but it's a complete story and it'll stand on its own pretty well. OVA 2, to me, even back when I was in college, was a mixed bag. The reason being is because, as others have said, that it essentially starts bringing up a lot more of the lore. You see a lot more of an overarching story. You start seeing a broader universe. And a lot of the ideas that are in OVA 2 fascinated me. They fascinated me to know in, and I wanted to know through. from, I think it was like 1998 or 1999, something like that. Until I finally torrented, yes, leet, piracy, torrented fan sub copies of OVA 3 that I started seeing where some of those threads sadly would end up. But I spent like a good four or five years there just theory crafting with so many other people of where could some of these ideas go. There's a lot of, I would still argue now that there are good ideas lurking in OVA 2. Hell, there's even a lot of good emotion, a lot of good acting, a lot of good scenes in the series that... Still really need some love. But, sadly this is one where you start seeing the cracks. The animation in this series is actually better, I would say, than OVA1. The animation here is much more crisp, much more refined. They've had some years to figure out, they basically work the kinks out of their process, and it shows. Sasami and Tsunami, the scene where Ia and Sasami are talking to each other, it is beautiful in all the shadows that they have on people's faces and the different looks that different people have. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful series. Same with the music. A lot of music's recycled from the previous show. But there actually are some new tracks that are in this particular series that aren't in the previous. Structurally, it's very, fairly nice. Good points about this series. Good moments. Favorite moments. Episode 7, Ryoki's Crystals. I love Ryoki's Crystals. They're cute. You have this, just, this entire mass of this fleet of tiny Ryokis essentially hiding in a storehouse. Just, they just want some carrots. That's all they want. And you see all of them fly away, and it's just it's a cute little scene. Now, point of fact, I do regard Night Before the Carnival not as part of, of OVA 1. I regard it as part of OVA 2. The reason being is because Night Before the Carnival has the same director as OVA 2 has, which is Kenichi Yatagai. So, as such, the Ryuoki Crystals moment is cute. It's, 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 it's nice to see. However, the next two episodes, uh, Hello Baby and Sasami and Tsunami, have, I'd argue, my favorite two scenes in the entire second OVA. In particular, Washu's story, where she's telling about her child and her family and how all these things, all these pressures tore them apart and the tragedy of her life and how that gets opened as she's taking care of this baby and remember, starting to see flashbacks of her own son. It's heartfelt. It's touching. I really feel for that character, and specifically since Washu in OVA 1 had maybe <laughs> a handful, a few lines in, OVA, in episode 6, and that's all she got, and then the series ends. This episode gives Washu a lot of good ch- chance to breathe. It gives her a chance to develop and see what kind of character she's going to be. Same thing in episode 9, you have that scene with Sasami and Ayaka where Sasami's having a crisis of identity. The idea of a mortal being being bonded to a god, that identity of who am I really? It's that's really really deep when you stop and think about it of how how can I be both of these things? Did I actually die? Am I still me? It handled in different ways, that could be very, very poignant type of thing. And still to have Ayaka stand there and say, You're still my little sister. I still love you no matter what. That's, again, that's a touching moment. I love the way it was portrayed. Episode 10, Riwoke's cute. I mean, I love Rewoki running running around. She's much more expressive. In the in episode ten, than in the previous episodes, because again it's her episode. So again, you get to see Ryoki run around and do and do things on her own, and see what she, see what she wants to do, not just be the vessel that carries everyone around. Of course, others have mentioned this before. Episode twelve, Washu and Clay's bickering professionally. I live in that kind of situation, so seeing uh, two animated characters bicker it out and Washu win out makes me feel real good inside because. There's a couple colleagues I'd love to do that too. Now, that said, again, lots of good moments throughout this series. It looks pretty. It looks nice. As others have said, there are some serious detriments to this series as well. In particular, starting off right off with the night before the carnival, you already start to see some problems forming. So Washu's now been introduced to the household, and Mahoshi asks her to pull her ship out of subspace so she can go back to the Galaxy Police, make a report about Kagato's defeat. And... When she does there's the cloud monster from episode four from the onsen episode that ryoko couldn't control so uh, again watch uh, ryoko and mahoshi duck behind corners and oh, oh no it's the monster what are we gonna do we're gonna get the, we gotta get the sword we gotta face this thing again washu just holds up her finger and dissipates it without a second thought huh interesting okay how'd you do that washu uh no no super technology just holds out her finger and it goes away I thought you needed another gem to do that. Are you somehow channeling the gems from Senshi's sword across the, across the yard or something? It also downplays all the trouble they had with the monster in the first place. If it could be waved off that quickly, it's not a threat. It downplays all the trouble that that thing made initially. It just, huh, it's gone. Don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah, I'm not, not a fan of that. Washi's story and Sasami's story for the next two episodes, they both suffer from the same thing. They're very poignant, very dramatic, very character-building moments. However, after Washu tells her story, the sob story, she's getting emotional. It's like, how dare someone tear your family away? He turns to Washu, and suddenly she is roughly seeming like a 30-year-old woman, and she immediately starts hitting on him. It's like, I'd t- I wouldn't mind having another child if it was yours. Uh, what? Here you are having this nice sob story about how having a family, how you'd rather be a child than deal with adult problems. Suddenly you're an adult and you're okay with Bone and Tenchi as long as long as long you get his kid. Really. I'm sorry, that turns me off. Then you have Sasami's story. Snowy already mentioned this, but again, after this dramatic moment, this touching moment between two sisters, Sasami runs seemingly toward her sister, and then Subversion runs past her, runs into Tenchi. Aike is even standing there going, Sasami, you silly girl. It diffuses all the drama that they've been built up to. Admittedly, I'm sure tr- I see what this trying to do. It's trying to be funny about it and break the tension. But the downside is, is that you downplay all the drama. You diffuse all that emotion you just had for laughs. And don't get me wrong, having a good laugh is nice, but that's that's not how you end a scene like that. Let's see, Ryoko. Oh. We, we've already mentioned this before, but I'll say it again. Ryoko starts getting seriously warfed in this sh- in this series. For those of you who aren't aware, Worf is a character from Star Trek The Next Generation. He's a Klingon, and Klingons from the original series, as well as the movies at this point, were a warrior race, and very strong, and very pronounced, and v- were antagonistic to the Federation for a long period of time. So having Worf on the bridge of the Enterprise, the Enterprise-D, It was a sign of that times had changed. He is also, again, he has more more, more strength than a normal human would. However, after a certain point, Worf becomes security chief. As such, he typically deals with threats on the bridge. So he's usually the first one into battle. Well, He's the first one in the battle, which means he's the first one to get thrown aside to show how to demonstrate how imposing the villain is. From this point forward, Ryoko starts feeling that way. Someone used the term punching bag. That's kind of what it means to be warfed. To be warfed is to, oh, you're the strongest of of us, but well, we're going to throw you at this to show how bad, how how difficult the big bad is, and it's. It's disappointing. It's disappointing to see a character who was built up as being very strong, very independent, and then she ends up being not only a running gag, but also essentially just a meter to show how strong the opponent, the opponent is. I, unfortunately, have to say that Episodes 11 and 12 suffer from the sense that they are basically retreading uh, the Kagato storyline from OVA1. The reason is, you have an evil Ryoko who is being controlled by a mad scientist who was a colleague of Washu's. It is the exact same storyline again. The only thing here is, is that Zero is more willing to serve Dr. Clay as opposed to Ryoko who was mind-controlled by Kagato. Naturally, of course, at the end, the the creation of rebels and is... Uh, torment is tormented, even fatally wounded by her creator. Moreover, in that particular episode, you have uh, Tenshi Aek and Mahoshi storming storming the Shunga battleship that was stolen from the Galaxy Police. This isn't even Clay's bloody ship. But the battle that they're having with all of his guards is backgrounded while Washu and Clay sit around and pontificate. That is another thing that's very bad about this particular series is 11, 12, and 13 suffer from this more so than any, is that they sit around and talk. That's all they do. They just sit around and, oh, uh, great things about uh, Ryoko's gems could create Lighthawk wings. Okay, uh, can we see that? Um, I, I don't know about these about these things. Uh, Tokimi, she may not even be there. Oh my god, could she be a goddess like in the title? Okay. Uh, again, this suffers from a storytelling problem, which is they they tell, don't show. As opposed to in a visual medium, like an anime, a film, or anything else that has pictures to it, you should show, don't tell. And sadly, you just have a lot of people sitting around and talking, which seems to be something that continues forward from this point forward. And lastly, last thing I'm going to mention here is, one thing I'm not going to elaborate any further on on this particular podcast, but there's a pattern. There's a particular pattern here. At the end of Washu's story, Washu goes from being a child, suddenly, to a 30-year-old woman. Sami's story. She's bonded with the goddess and has revealed that Tsunami's physical form is Sasami when she gets older. Sasami now has an adult form. Episode 10. You have Ryuoki, suddenly bonds with this uh, globular masu thing and gains an adult female form. Okay. Then you have episode 12 where Ryoko is stuck in a thing and coaxed against her better judgment because she was arguing with Washu via their mind link communication to bond with a being who's supposed to be the other half of her. Ryoko in particular actually calls her out and says, you're lying Washu. Why would you do this without my decision? And she coaxes her into it saying like, she's the one who's really true with her feelings. Is she? Is she really? There's, three characters right there in a no yeah three no four characters right there in a row who were altered from their original incarnations why i'm sure that i could speculate here and pontificate as to my speculations as to this as well as, as, well as reference me, multiple interviews that would corroborate this but i'm going to leave i'm going to leave you the audience to decide this one why would you take a mad scientist who t- chose to become a child to avoid responsibility and turn into an adult? Why would you take a child and then merge her with a goddess to make her look like she's 20? Why would you take the Cabot mascot and merge her with a, another extraterrestrial being to have a female form? Why would you merge the trademark, the, the, the flagship character, the most combative character you have with a much more passive ...female version of herself to make her whole. I ask you, why?
0: Well, Pai hit on a lot of my points, but I've got a couple that I'm gonna extrapolate on that he had brought up. But first, before we get to that point, I will say some of the things that I did like about OVA2 that I thought were favorite moments. One of them was the introduction of Tokimi. Not necessarily how she would end up being, but... The idea of Tokimi was kind of cool because one, I loved her theme. Her theme theme of Tokimi is very super Metroid y. It's very spacey. It's very it, it's it's a really cool theme. And I think it it's very ethereal, so it fits very well with Tokimi as a character. The idea of Tokimi kind of being the opposite of Tsunami was kind of cool because this was really before Tenchi Muyo and goddesses and gods and all that had kind of gotten completely out of hand. And it was kind of cool. Like, I, I thought the the mystery of it, the almost horror of it was kind of cool. The I Love Tenchi episode where Ryooki you know, forms with the Masu and there's, uh, you know, Ryoko is wearing uh, achi, Achika, ha 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 this is the OVA, wearing Tenchi's mother's kimono and just that whole thing there. I also liked how Washu was teaching class and all of the girls are basically dunces and they <laughs> Washu drops a tanuki on Ryoko and I mean tanukis are funny. And I, I thought that like overall at especially at the time I thought that was a funny episode. I like the sci-fi elements. I felt like they they weren't the same as in OVA1 but I, I they kept up in parity. Not parody but parity to OVA1. And for the most part, I enjoyed most of Hello Baby. Like, I think, I, coming right out of OVA1, Hello Baby is a nice change of pace. You just got done fighting Kagato. You just got done having this, like, life-altering event. And now all the girls are kind of, you know, relaxing all of these fantastic, a space pirate and a genius and uh, uh, two princesses. And how will they, you know, how will they take care of a baby? It's fun. It's fun. But that's about where the buck stops, because as far as fun and favorites are concerned, because when you when I first went through, and I'm sure Pi, Snowy, and so on, as we're going through, we don't notice it the first time because we're high on OVA1. When you look at it critically, and especially with hindsight, and looking what has come out afterwards, it is fatally flawed. Fatally. I will say fatally flawed. Because it doesn't hold up to any kind of scrutiny. And if anything, it represents... Some people may not agree with this assessment, but OVA2 is just OVA3 with nostalgia. It is. It absolutely is. And that's obviously a lot more provocative than Pi was going to say, but that's my part of That's my job in this particular podcast, to be the provocateur. One of the things, and Pi did this, but all, like I said, I'd extrapolate on it, is I hate, I despise the idea that each of the girls was not good enough. I despise the idea that they needed something to become better, that they needed something to become whole, and we can almost unequivocally point the finger with sources abundant at right at Kajishima. He doesn't like those characters for whatever reason, and he's made that abundantly clear a number of different times, including the newly released Shintenshi novel, which we will get to in a podcast. I don't know which one is more damning, but I'll just go down the list. Washu goes talks about this moment where she loses a child, and this child, of course, is assumed looking at them to be, oh, look, she's supposed to be maybe related to Mihoshi. And it's this life-altering event. LOL JK, I'm 30, let's smash. No, I reject that. That's bad. I don't like that. I don't like the implications. And then, you get to Ryooki. The mascot. Pioneer's mascot. She gets transformed into an adult female. At the time, doesn't seem like a big deal. There's all kinds of other females around. Then you actually look at it again. And you're like, wow, what is that hinting at? The Sasami one is one of the, I, I, that one bothers me a lot, a lot. Because what a lot of people overlook or miss is there's a moment where, uh, they're at the onsen. Or they're out there with the old lady. And they're going through, and Sasami's not acting like herself. And there's no particular reason why. There's literally no reason why. Now bear in mind, she's eight years old. There's no reason for her to just not, like, not be bubbly. There's no explanation given. And they, her and, Wa- and Washu chases after her, and they're walking through this field. And Washu's like, oh, look, there's this pretty flower, blah, blah, blah. You should take it, Sasami. That's it. That's the scene ends. What people don't know, again, hindsight, the internet, that particular flower is apparently, in Okayama, a remedy for menstruation. She's fucking eight years old, Kajishima. What is that? What is that? What is that supposed to be? What is that supposed to mean? What are the implications? And then we get to Ryoko. Which is why I said I don't know which one is more damning. Then we get to Ryoko and we literally have the characters in the show say you're not whole. You're not complete. You need this other thing to be you. This overly emotional uh, wimp. This subdued, not very strong female character. And fusing with Zero, at the time, again, at the time, you think, oh, it's a sweet moment. Ryoko's gonna become more in tune with her emotions. What you actually see is Ryoko becoming a doormat who no longer has the fortitude to stand up to anyone. Remembering, of course, like Snowy brought up, that she gets run over by Misaki. Ryoko was the most feared thing in the universe to Jirai. She blew it to shit. It's hard to articulate, but all of that is a setup. For the harem, all of that is a setup, so that it's socially acceptable to have a harem. For no other reason than Kajishima willed it to be. It doesn't make sense with the plot. Oftentimes, openly clashes with character development, and outright is assassination of character, quite literally, for Ryoko. And I'm where I'm supposed to believe. I, I went to believe. I'm supposed to, I'm told, not even one, I'm told to believe that that is the one true way of Tenchi Muyo. That this particular, you know, following OVA1, this is acceptable. And I don't, that, that don't, that fish is three days old and I ain't buying. To some people, that might not seem like a big deal. Oh, Tenchi is the Tenchi is a harem series. Tenchi didn't start out as a harem series. It's considered the godfather of modern harems because it did everything that modern harems do, minus the part where there's actually any kind of payoff. Or well, Tenchi had a payoff, but modern harems do not. They took the template, and uh, I, I couldn't get over that. I couldn't. Once, like Snowy said, once I figured that out, and once I was, once that became firmly implanted in my mind, and the signs and all of the tell, and I just the kind of the ridiculousness of how those things are shoehorned in there, you can't, you can't look back from it. It's a, it's a detriment. It's very fatally detriment, in my opinion. Now, we've kind of gone over why things are our favorite. Are they not our favorite? Our least favorite? OVA2 introduces a ton of new characters. We see Taro, we see Tenchi's cousin, we see Dr. Clay, we see Z at the very end, who we don't actually know as Z yet. Zero, Tokimi, Miyoshi's great 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 descendant, Washu's husband. All of these new characters, all of these plot lines, and subplots, in hindsight, were they done well. I
1: want to be generous in a way and say somewhat but like okay seeing tokimi in full for the first time really cool some of these elements i'm like oh wait these are really cool like unique little seeds that are being planted where is this gonna go and eventually we saw ova3 we saw where it did go and look how that turned out kajishima regardless of like how i feel about him his problem as a writer is that he has way too many ideas at once, and he doesn't have the space to fill it. I'm not saying he deserves the space to fill it. Definitely not. But he has all these different ideas and wants to steer the course in his own way, regardless of what the last OVA was and what that was promising. What what made OVA1 great was it had a sense of humbleness to it, it established its main characters and its villain, and it was sowing those tiny seeds of the lore. Again, even though it got very, a little bit convoluted near the end, as we've mentioned in the previous podcast and, of course, here. But it was its own complete story. OVA 2 just feels like an advertisement for whatever Kajishima wants to write in the future. It just feels like it's an advertisement like, hey, you want to see where all this stuff goes? Well, wait seven ten years whatever like you'll get a payoff you might not like it but you'll get that payoff it felt more episodic and and sitcom in a way because it's just throwing so much shit at you and you just like when you initially watch it you roll with it but as you go back you're like wait this is way too cluttered this is way too convoluted kajashima what the hell are you doing to be different from ova1 to ova2 needed to have A story like a very solid story from beginning to end at least i think and it could have flipped some things on its head it could have thrown us for a few loops it could have had a couple twists but it didn't it just felt like kajishima just put in these new characters these new ideas which some of them yeah some of them are interesting initially and you want to see where they go but the thing is, Kajishima does so much world-building that he forgets... I mean, it's not good world-building, but he does so much of it that it that he fundamentally forgets the core of Tenshi Muyo. The heart of this franchise is the characters. And it always will be. And it's because it's not what Kajishima wanted. He wanted to tell his own story. It's going to be his way or the highway. And it really is unfortunate because some of these concepts are good. I would say some of these on paper, some of these are like, yes, that could work. But again, it's all an execution. And to kind of make a connection, OVA two reminds me of Iron Man two in a way where it forgets what made the first one so important and becomes an advertisement for something quote unquote greater I like Iron Man Two more than OVA Two. That's for sure. But, like, like we said, the cracks start to show. The flaws start to come out. We see because again, Kajishima. This one, Kajishima, really took over, and he just. This is the start of him running this franchise into the ground.
3: Well, this goes back to what was said about Lady Tokimi. I've always felt that if you're going to introduce something into a story, it should be used in some way. If you introduce something and nothing's done with it, what exactly is it there for? What if they brought up the Lighthawk wings, but they never came into play? And Tenchi simply won his fights through nothing but plot armor. What if the gems were brought up that were supposed to constitute Ryoko's power and nothing was done with them at all? We... Have to see these things, as was brought up earlier. Otherwise, well, nothing's going to make a lot of
2: sense. And in hindsight, I would say yes, in a way, just because you see Lady Tokini for the first time, and to be honest, I wasn't too interested in her at first. Like, because I mean, you saw her in Sasami's dream in Night Before the Carnival, and you saw her as a threat. I, I figured she was going to be some some sort of prota- uh, antagonist, actually. Not protagonist, sorry. Antagonist. And, I mean, she, she is, has a gorgeous design, by the way. Like, her design is, like, lovely. But it's like, you show her, and she's she seen to be, like, some kind of mastermind villainess. Like, opposite of uh, Tsunami. And then you have Clay and Zero going off to do what she wills. And then you don't really see her again. And it's just like, well, okay. Oh, well, I suppose. And then, yeah, you get the payoff later in Ob 3 I mean, if you could call it a payoff, I guess. And you have to wait how many years for that. And it's, it's a disappointment, to say the least. So the first time around, I wasn't too interested in her. Because I just figured, you know, she's just kind of like there. I kind of telling everybody else what to do. I mean, if she came out of the shadows and started doing something, then I would have totally been like, oh, my God. But, you know, she never did. And then you get Sasami family coming over and all that. And I like Minaho and Misaki. Like, they're fun characters, I think. Like, I really enjoyed their them being there and interacting with the characters. And Misaki especially, just being the way she is. I mean, like, that's me when I see cute stuff. It's like, oh my god, cute stuff, you know? Like, <laughs> I love her. And the fact that they kind of ruined her character in OVA 3, like being some kind of contractor or whatever she was, versus seeing her in OVA 2 just being like a doting mother and just like, you know, very immature and just happy, ganky kind of girl, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I didn't really like, you know, the emperor or anything, or what, what's-his-face cotton candy head. They were just kind of there for butts of the joke, I think. And seeing all these new characters was interesting but the fact they never really went anywhere or when, when they did it was just too much too much yet not enough Like you got too many of these new things but you don't explain them uh you, you introduce something but you never show it like what's the point of that like what if uh, you showed like you talked about the hot wings fly hot wings so many times but you don't show them or the gems so many times but you don't show them like what's the point of mentioning that if you're not gonna give us the details so that's my beef with that
4: there's a lot of things that i i said before that were introduced introduced in ova2 that i really dug that i uh thought were introduced well some things however Especially in hindsight. Hindsight is quite 2020 in this regard. But there are several things in hindsight that were not handled as well. I will say, from, at least from my perspective, Lady Tokimi and her assistant D3 were introduced, in my opinion, very well. I liked the mystery that we had this goddess in the shadows who's cryptic, un, possibly even unknowable. Not to elude too much, but Lovecraftian in her ways that you, she may not be comprehensible. And if you did, were able to comprehend it, your mind would explode or something. As Zero said, when she saw Hokimi, she was Zero, a robot who has all of her emotions stripped from her at this point before she's implanted with Ryoko's uh, mind and mem- memories and emotions. Even being stripped of all those emotions, Zero was afraid that this being she could she could make logical computations of just about any other ethereal being, but Takimi was something else. She was something other, something she could not, comp- uh, in in any of the ways that she could compute, could not comprehend, and that kind of that kind of setup is beautiful i love that kind of setup is, is there's this great unknowable puzzle and it needs we need to solve it we need to understand i want to know more about this this thing and again back in back in the day when i was collecting these things originally i had fairy crafted all over the place i wanted to know who tukimi was and that introduction in ova 2 is great just the way all these spires of darkness sh- shoot up and then tukimi just appears out of nothingness and in the english dub here's an interesting fact. In the Japanese, Tokimi is played by Jennifer Darling, who's Aieka's voice actress. And you can hear it a little bit. Uh, she, her voice is distorted by some uh, audio engineering. but it's still that kind of kind of uh, very very educated, very regal, has presence. and it's like she has power. And that's that's how you would introduce a new character, and especially with her character design, with the clawed with the clawed gloves and the very narrow eyes, she's built like a villain. And it's like I want to know what she's got up her sleeve. I mean, she's instructing these minions, Clay and D, uh, Clay D3 and uh, Zed as well. We didn't know his name at the time, uh, Zero, to go out and do things to Washu, to catch Washu, to bring her in, and. Clay's a nefarious guy, and you can't, you can't. If she's a god and she can see all these, see all these things, and she's so above everything, how could she not know that Clay's not, a, not on the level, and that he, she's, he's going to do something. He's going to go against her better judgment, unless she's going along with it. I loved her introduction. I adored that introduction for her. The masses introduction, the masses introduction, was. I think it could have been handled better, rather than just have Washu sit there and lecture lecture to us. Actually, kind of get in get in there, see the mass do different things. You could have done all sorts of things with the with the mass. You could have had the mass be like John Carpenter's The Thing. It it essentially takes on the mind of, of the of the anything any will that's around it that's greater than its own. It assimilates and copies that, which is why it took on a humanoid form supposedly to essentially help tension in the fields. Well. Hey, you could do that really easily. <laughs> essentially have it glall on from person to person and essentially do their greatest desire or twist them in some way. Or you could you could do some really, really cool sci-fi stuff with that thing. But no, let's just go work in the fields. I think that particular thing could have been handled a lot better. Episode 13. I've already pontificated a lot on this podcast, so I'll keep this fairly short. But the dry stuff in episode 13 could have been handled far better reason being if any of you have read hexagram of love then you have seen a different interpretation of these characters before that predates the airing of this episode so in particular azusa is not a joke who is henpecked by his two wives he is the king of jirai he goes where he wishes if he wants someone killed he will send the divine response warrior to kill he is not just some pushover, doting father for Ieka. No, he's the king of Jirai. He is the king of the known universe. You don't mess with him. And here's the thing: he's also portrayed as being just a cool guy. If you're not, if you don't have a beef with him, he'll sit down and have a beer with you. He's jovial to his son Yosho. He's uh, he's kind to his daughters, but he's still stern. He's he's what you would imagine a king would be. Moreover, you also have Misaki, his wife the only wife notably that's mentioned and she is very regal and knowledgeable about her ways she instructs her daughter and she gets concerned about her daughter she's not a lunatic who throws people into walls and essentially uh stops at the nearest cutest thing she is, has her mind on her business because she's the queen of an empire what happened what really happened here interestingly if one compares Misaki's portrayal in Hexagram of Love to Fanaho's portrayal in episode 13 of the of OVA2, you start seeing something. And you start seeing certain characteristics that are in common, but with a different name. And different uh, different species, so to speak, between Misaki and Fanaho. I'm not going to get into the first versus second thing here, but something was amiss here. And uh, I can't look past it anymore. You've, I've seen too much. There seems to be that certain characters that were created at certain times seem to be now portrayed different ways I already talked about at length of uh, what happened some of the stuff that seems to be happening with the main cast but even with the secondary cast the ancillary cast the extended universe cast if you will even they are starting to be portrayed in different ways and then you look look slightly forward and you see what happens to misaki in the next in the next chapter of this uh, this little saga of ours and you really can, kind of scratch your head and it's like what did she do? How did she do? And why would this happen to her? Interesting. And I think I'll leave it at that. I think they could have done far better with the Dorian characters and use a far different way of introducing them and portraying them.
0: Not including new Ryōoki or new Yōshō, who's actually young Yōshō but looks old all the time because of reasons. There are... Fourteen new characters introduced in OVA2. Of those fourteen, li- a little less than half get any kind of remote development at all. That, as Doctor was saying, and as Pi also said, Kajushima does a lot of tell but not show. He brings up a lot of plot points like Arya said, that never truly get fleshed out, that never truly get highlighted. Some of them do get a decent amount, and some of them don't need a lot of time. Like, for instance, even, you know, talking about Washu's past, just having the little bit that they put in there is not inherently bad. I think it was done well for what the purpose was. The purpose was to show that Washu had something in her past that caused her to want to be the way that she is now. That's fine. Looking at Tokimi, Tokimi ultimately, her plotline ends up working out pretty decently. If we're, if you know, we're talking just whatever. Azusa, same thing. He doesn't have, you know, as far as his plot. Although actually, I could say that his plotline never comes up again because he's he's kind of in a quagmire. Tenshi Muyo has the problem now that a lot of American cartoons or any long running anime have, where the people behind it realize, oh shit, we can't actually end this thing. So any kind of end game plot points get either completely retconned or sidelined. The end game for Tenshi Muyo OVA is that Tenshi takes the throne of Jirai. You don't get much bigger than that. It's probably never going to happen. I think the introduction of it, was it was it a farce to introduce Serio for literally a minute, maybe? But the implication is it's important. Much like Ryoko, much or fusing with Zero, much like Sasami being Tsunami, these incredibly important and character-changing points. Oftentimes get sidelined or retconned completely, and there's no particular reason why. Overall, do I think that OVA 2's plot lines were done well? I think they were serviceable, but as was said earlier, it feels like a big advertisement. It, it, it's the Molly New Circle for any gamers out there. It's hey guys, I want to do this thing. Oh hey, I'm doing this thing but we don't have enough budget, maybe next time. And it's this big vicious cycle that never ever gets fixed, and for some reason a lot of people don't see that. And they just assume that, ah, I believe him this time. Wiley Coyote, I believe him this time. Charlie Brown can only miss kicking that football for a while before he's jumped the shark. You know, you stop rooting for Charlie Brown and you start rooting for... What's-her-face? I can't remember her name. Because you want her. Because you look at... You know, anybody looking in would go, Ah, well, I mean, he deserves it now because he doesn't see it because it's so obvious. Now that we have talked at length about the plots, about the characters, here's a little twist. Tenshi Universe was essentially an extended retelling of OVA1. If AIC... Or should AIC have made a Tenchi universe for OVA2? Would that have helped the story and the plot points in OVA2? Or do you think it would have hurt them and made them even more convoluted?
3: I don't personally think it would have helped or hurt it either way, honestly. Each telling of the story has its own nuances and charms. Things to like, things to dislike if it were to be a thing and it provided more material for anyone wanting to watch and get invested, I really think that's about all we as fans could probably ask for in the long run. You know, to have more stuff to latch onto as fans of Tenchi as a series, as an IP, to be able to go, this is what we love. I think that would be good in and of itself if it were to continue but on its own as it is i i really think it's fine you know complaints aside of course and well, uh, i don't think we need too much else
1: tenchi universe the 26 episode series from 1995 is my favorite tenchi thing ever i'd probably say yeah because it took this Short story. This short six-episode story from Togovia One branched out, and it changed. It did change things around, obviously, because you got to keep things fresh. But it made a, a really nice, really solid, complete TV series. And honestly, I had a lot of fun with it. Like, first arc was very episodic, save for the multiverse three-parter. The second arc was was like a serial it was it had some episodic elements of course but it was more of a serial like from episode 14 on the gang was on the run they were trying to figure out this mystery of who is this guy who is this yosho guy who we find out later it's not yosho it's actually cogito um and that was a nice twist like when i found when i was watching it and we found that I'm like, oh, they're doing this. This is really cool. They brought this thing in that we knew from before, and now it's being told in this different way that makes the that makes it fresh, that makes it interesting. Now, if AIC had done it for OVA2, I fully believe, without a doubt, it could have only helped it. OVA2 is completely and utterly cluttered. It is a very cluttered, very choppy, messy. OVA compared to OVA 1, of course. They could have done some great stuff if they made like a season two of Tension Universe and have it be a sort of adaptation, refixing of OVA 2. The first arc could either be episodic or the first arc could be dealing with Dr. Clay and Zero Ryoko and stuff like that. Of course, done better. And the second arc could be. Actually, doing stuff with the Jiraiyan royal family. Maybe actually do that concept of Tenchi having to fight his family, because I think that is a very, very interesting concept that I wish out of all the plot points that was promised in OVA 2, that one is the most interesting to me. And that is seen as sort of an endgame scenario, like Dagon said previously. It could have really been something cool and it could have really fixed the story. That was done by a writer who, like we've said, loved, pretty much loves the sound of his own voice, or in this case, writing, and thinks he's a genius. Um, we could have gotten someone who would be like, yeah, these points work, but let's, re- let's retool it this way. Let's try to analyze it, see what worked, see what didn't, and let's make it into a nice, solid 26-episode anime. Yeah, if, if they could have done that with OVA2, if they could have made—if they could have, like— extended these arcs these stories and made them better i really believe it could have worked
2: i don't know i i don't think say is like it wouldn't probably made it any better to be honest it probably would just drag stuff on more or maybe just add more stuff that we would never learn about and i don't know i just don't see it panning out very well like they could try to make it like Tenchi Universe, but it wouldn't probably be the same, quote-unquote, I suppose. I mean, it depends, I guess. But if you really want to go more into OVA 1 in a, in a way to see if what it could have possibly been, I would just read the manga, to be honest. No need for Tenchi, and then all they all knew Tenchi Muyo, because that really just goes off of like immediately right after the Kaguto attack in OVA 1 and then you get immediately right into another adventure. Like, right after that, no, all this lulls and all that. I mean, there's some, like, moments, there's slice-of-life moments, but I just think that something like the manga should get animated, even if it was just, like, a 12-episode, like, or 24-episode series, or even just a OVA of that. I mean, I mean Okuda does something that Kajishima just can't, and it's just that, he adds a lot of characters into his series, too, to spice things up. But they're usually, like, characters that kind of come and go, and you don't really see them again. Like, whether they die or just their plot arc is over. And they're just... The characters in that are just done so much better, in my opinion, just because, like, you know, they have, like, stakes. They have personalities. they 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 know when to go, you know... It's just, I would recommend the manga most definitely versus, like, I would even actually not necessarily watch OVA2 unless you really, really want more Tenchi lore. I would just watch OVA1 and then go straight to the manga, but that's just my personal opinion.
4: Dagon, you should know better than to ask me to uh, talk about speculations of adapting things into new stories. Never tell a fan fiction writer what he... Uh, ask a fan fiction writer what he wants to do. So... Could AIC have made a uh, Tenchi Universe version of OVA2? Well, I'm going to take for assumption that we're going to be adapting uh, OVA2 into Tenji Universe as Tenchi Universe already stands and not some standalone, uh, that the ideas of uh, OVA2 would be integrated into Tenji Universe. Well, sadly, some of them would work, I think, but some of them would not. The reason being is the di- character dynamics and some of the character relationships in the universe are actually far different than they are in the OVA. In particular, uh, Ryoko in the Tenchi universe has no relationship to Washu, except possibly they might be from the same race or something. Ryoko is a space pirate. She's well known amongst the, amongst the galaxy. She has her own rivals like Nagi. <laughs> um, there's all sorts of other things going on. Washu is not connected to the gods to our knowledge. Washu is just a genius scientist who was exiled for her illegal experiment 700 years ago. Aieka is not searching for her her lost brother, Yosho. While Katsuhito is Yosho in Tenchi Universe, she, uh, they, she and uh, Aieka and Yosho are not directly blood-related. In fact, Aieka takes a... Significant amount of time in episode 23 of Tension Universe, specifically to address the fact that there are multiple branch families who are basically vying for control. The opening of Tension Universe even states that ayaka is a pending marriage. She's going to all these different marriage meetings, being courted for her essential her essential marriage. In episode 14, no, it's 15. In episode 15. Uh, she is addressed as the, uh, the heir to the throne because as soon as she gets married, the throne has been empty pending marriage by the princess Ayaka. So whoever her husband is going to be is going to sit by her side on the throne of Jurai. So some of these things that are in OVA2 – don't jive and can't jive with uh, Tenshi Universe's already existing, existing situation. Now, can some of them be adapted and changed to fit that particular mold? And I think so. Washu, as mentioned, in Tenshi Universe, is, has been out of the picture for 700 years. In which case, she's back on the scene. Uh, what research has been done in the meantime? Hey, there's this Dr. Clay bozo over here who's a bit of a comedic character, but he has uh, his, his robot Zero who's assisting him. And he has some schemes that are going on in the background. We could investigate those. Would they necessarily be tied to uh, goddesses or whatnot? Who knows? But hey, he could be play as an antagonist. Maybe he builds a mo- a version of the dimension oscillating bullet and pre- proceeds to try and dest- uh, destroy a planet with it the same way Washu did. tries to replicate her work, and then we need Washu to swoop in with the, her knowledge of the original device to try and stop him. I mean, there's there's ways you could make that he could make that work. Tokimi and uh, D3. Again, there's not much known about the gods in Tenchi Universe. They're not really mentioned. Although in episode 25 of Tenchi Universe, uh, when Kagato is defeated, Ayaka, Kagato, and Sasami, and Tenchi all share a vision of Jirai and Earth switching back and forth inside the inside the palace. In fact, Kagato has a lot of rhetoric right there where he says, "Is this your is this your decision? Has has Jirai chosen its own master then?" Is that actually Tsunami making a choice? If that's so, then that means the Jirai power itself is cognizant. Well, to allude to delightful things in my imagination, you have Kane from Tenchi Muyu and Love who thrives on anti-Jirai. Who's to say that the source of his power may not be our dark lady Tokimi waiting in the shadows to come to step forward now that her her champion Kane has been defeated. There, there's ways that could be played, and I, I'm i going to leave it at, leave that particular chestnut sitting there. As far as the Dry Royal Family, I think Dry Royal Family as an antagonist would fit in Tenshi Universe far better than any other, and here's why. It's already been an antagonist. As Doctor mentioned a moment ago, from episode 14 to 26 of Tenshi Universe, you have an entire story arc where uh, the dry, the Dry military... The Galaxy Police and Nagi, of all people, are all hunting down the uh, Masaki household as they fly around trying to essentially clear their names of tr- being uh, traitors to the throne. Well... Again, you have several people who are uh, Jirai operatives who are in on the coup by by Kagato. There are several people who have tried to kill them along the way. In particular, Kagato himself was of Jirai royal blood. He was like a branch of the Jirai royal family who was jealous of Yosho and then took his name after Yosho left Jirai and then tried to ascend the throne in his stead. So we've already had Jirai and antagonists. Now, will they necessarily be Ayaka and Sasami's parents? Well, interesting thing. Again, Ayaka was supposed to ascend the throne pending her marriage, which means there wasn't an emperor before the, before, right, immediately before the series started. So where is Ayaka's parents? Where, are, where is Ayaka's mother, Ayaka's father, uh, Sasami's parents by extension as well? Are they dead? Were they where they lost where's what's what's going on here how did Ayaka essentially end up to where she's pending marriage to send the throne kagatos minions all mention that they've already eliminated all other claimants to the throne and Ayaka's is the last one because she and the most important because she's next in line we need to get her so was part of the coup actually eliminating the previous emperor? Maybe there's a mystery there that needs to be solved, and maybe some of these other Jorian characters could be parts of that. Maybe uh, Azusa and Misaki actually existed, but they were but they were killed or lost or. Uh, otherwise incapacitated so that Kagato could rise to power. Hey, maybe they were all orchestrated by some Grand Master, some woman who sits upon the Holy Council and makes some of the decisions behind a fan that she holds in front of her face. I mean, we could play all sorts of interesting little games with this if we really, 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 really want to. Giving Ryuoki a humanoid form or introducing the mass, I don't think that's really a good idea. I don't think that would jive too well because Ryuoki has already been shown to be a part of a larger species of creatures because Kenoki exists in Tenshi Universe. If they were to get a, if she was to get a female, an adult female form, well, by logic, Kenoki should get the same thing, but a male form. And how would you explain that? How would you play that? You know, it starts getting harder and harder to essentially substantiate that, and that's where I'd kind of say, no, nah, let's leave that one on the drawing board. Um, as far as Hello Baby with Tarot, I think that could be – that could be done pretty easily, and here's how you do it. Um, essentially adapt Hizugawa's volume uh, novels 11, 12, and 13 because in O's 3 Mayuka is a baby and, in, and is per- a permanent fixture in the household, in which case – There's your taking care of the baby story arc. You take care of Mayuka. Now, you might have to adapt adapt the Daughter of Darkness movie into the TV series in order for Mayuka to exist in this storyline, but I don't think that would be too far of a leap of logic, Um, and we'll leave that particular adaptation to another discussion. Uh, So, yeah, I think a lot of this stuff could be implemented into Tenshi Universe and be adapted, but I think you're going to have to make major changes if you wanted to fit it into Tenshi Universe as it it already stands. Now, if you wanted to make, say, a new continuity and have these ideas, again, you'd probably have to do some adaptation, but you might be able to get them much more directly implemented and possibly improved in that way.
0: You know, that was honestly my thought thinking about this particular question was would it be possible to take the elements of OVA2 and make them work in a different type of format because it's obvious that you can only do much in six episodes and there's so much going on that a lot of it gets left as was said many times as an advertisement if you extended that out you have more time to breathe, you have more time to adapt those arcs. Now, does that mean to say that all of those arcs, like Snowy was saying, that they were worth adapting in the first place? Maybe not. I definitely would be interested to see how they would try and adapt a zero Ryoko situation. I think the manga did it very well with Minagi, because you have this character that is like Ryoko, that is similar to Ryoko, that is different than Ryoko, but they are their own character. They don't take away from Ryoko, they complement Ryoko when they're on screen. Or is it just taking the very base concept and making it its own thing? Ultimately, would I like to see it? Would a Tenchi universe extend, or Tenchi extended universe with that, you know, following in the footsteps of OVA2? Would that be something I'd want to see? Do I think it would be possible? Of course! It'd be more Tenchi, and I think it would also be done by a different set of people. You would have different different people, different writers, different screenplay, uh, or different uh, storyboarders, different director. Maybe Nagishi would come back to it. How would Nagishi look at these characters and say, okay, what can I do with this? How can I make this work for a TV format? It'd be interesting to see how they would take any of the OVA now, post-OVA 1, and make them fit into a TV series. How they would take these plot points and try and make them work. Because this, of course, would be a sequel to Tenshi Universe. So it would also have to have some congruency with all of the things that happened in that timeline as well. I want to thank everybody who came in today. It was a long podcast, but it was a great podcast. Is there anything that anybody would like to add before we uh, call it a day?
2: Um, I will, I guess, because I forgot to mention it earlier, and I totally forgot about um the night before the carnival when we were talking about OVE2, because I guess it would be counted as OVE2, and I actually really like, it. I know it's just kind of its own thing, and I know it's like, like, I know the nature of the show at this point, you know, sexual humor, I guess, is, I'm not gonna, I can't, you know, I have to be blunt about that. I mean, it is a lot, because that's the whole point of the episode, but I have to say, that's quite a funny episode, one of my favorites, just because you see, you have Sasami, who's one of the more mature girls of the house, tricking Ryoko and to thinking that manga books, like, really old manga books, are, like, guidebooks, love guidebooks, and so you see them, like, acting like fools, you know, using manga as, like, templates of, like, love, and you see them act all ridiculous, and using that and acting like it in quote unquote real life and i think that's really funny and also the whole like sabotage of um and Ryoka and aika teaming up to sabotage uh, washu and mihoshi just to have it all just blow up in their face in the end like literally because they're like sitting near the lake and they just crawled out of and they're just like sitting there laughing hysterically while mihoshi like crashes down onto them i mean I wish I had more stuff like that because it was generally like really funny to see them because it was more of like just like a normal slice of life thing. And of course, yeah, the thing in the middle with Washu really bugged me. Like I just skipped that. I think that's rather gross and not needed. I mean, that's just Washu's character, I suppose, being a troll and all that. But that was just way too explicit for my taste. And I could definitely live without that. But all the other stuff was, you know, I, I rather liked it and enjoyed it, actually.
3: I think that the series could stand to have a little bit more action so that you could see just how powerful some of these characters outside of Tenchi and the like really are. Mihoshi, as clumsy as she comes across, as ditzy as she can come across, has her moments where she's extremely capable. I'd like to see how far that would extend. I think it would be pretty cool not to mention her seeming power over causality. I want to see that in motion. That is, it's, it's a hilarious plot point, and I think they could do more with it.
1: I love in Universe and in Daughter of Darkness how Miyoshi plays the foil to Kione because, you know, I love Kyone. She's great and the fact that kajishima just wants to pretend that she never existed just irks me to no end but um as a character i i think mihoshi in i want to say all of the ova but i can't say for certain but i like her a lot more in the ova because they explain that she's not just she's not just you know ditzy or klutz she's no she's actually kind of smart she's actually kind of like she knows what she's doing but she's at the point where she's just so overworked that her that her brain is scattered and i think that is a very cool setup for her and of course it doesn't really go anywhere to my knowledge but like i think that version of mihoshi should be if at all possible explored more in the future one more thing i wanted to say is one of the things i really like this is like a very minor thing in a way but i liked how i liked seeing everyone i liked seeing the main characters fight side by side i don't know something about something about um in episode 12 of ova2 when we see uh tenchi and aika like getting down to business we're like okay we got to get into uh clay's ship we got like we're in Serious mode. We know what we're doing, and of course, I mean Miyoshi know, is there to like have the tension break. But it's one of those things where it's like it could be very easy for to have like Ryoko and Ika just see Tenchi as like the 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 golden trophy at the end of the tunnel, as many series of this ilk have done with you know love interest and in the main character. It could be very easy for them to do that, but they don't. They they have actual relationships with him outside of just their love for him. And that's something that nowadays uh, you don't really see too much in in the harem series or whatever. And it's one of those things that just makes me smile and it makes me be like, yeah, Tenchi was its own thing. It had this personality. It wasn't just like it couldn't have just been a shallow harem series. It was something bigger. But it's just those moments that I really like, and it makes me be like, wow, actual time and effort was put into crafting these relationships.
0: All right, then. Thanks, everyone, for listening. It was a ton of fun. I hope you all enjoy. If you liked all the stuff that we talked about today, make sure you follow us. You can find links in the description for Google Play Music, Stitcher, Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, iTunes. Come talk to us on Discord, links in the description, all things Tenchi, and make sure you check out TenchiForum.com for all the latest things Tenchi. Until next time, stay gold.